Hello, friends. Welcome to the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, and artists who challenge the way we think and help us to grow in more empathy and compassion. In this week's podcast, we're honored to learn from Amanda Held Opelt about her book, A Hole in the World, Finding Hope in Rituals of Grief and Healing. It's a beautifully written book that explores ways to find faith and hope amid seasons of grief and suffering. In this episode, Amanda talks with us about becoming a social worker and serving as a chaplain. She talks about her work helping others overcome grief, trauma, and loss. She talks about how to support a grieving friend and what not to say. She shares what the Bible tells us about grief and suffering. She talks about how to engage with God even in the midst of trauma or a crisis of faith. And at the end of the podcast, she shares how the Christian concepts of faith and hope can help sustain us during dark times. Amanda Held Opelt is an author, speaker, and songwriter. She writes about faith, grief, and creativity, and believes in the power of community, ritual, worship, and shared stories to heal even our deepest wounds. Amanda has spent the last 15 years as a social worker and humanitarian aid worker. Here's our conversation. So Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your beautiful book, your authenticity, your beautiful writing, the way that you have expressed grief and and um, shared parts of your life in this in this wonderful book. I want to thank you for that. Now, I I really feel that this is a gift that you're giving me to be here to talk about your book. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, my my first question to you really is about your your desire to be a social worker. Mm-hmm. Like, take me back to what led you to go into social work and how did that uh, how did those those that period prepare you or not prepare you for what was ahead? Sure. Yeah, Mike, thank you so much for having me. Um, it really is a joy to be here and, and to speak with you and for your interest in the book and interest in the topic. I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's interesting um, that in a couple places in, in my bio, it says I'm a social worker. I do have a history of being a social worker and kind of the last, uh, I guess, 15 years of my career, I started out as a social worker uh, working in um, kind of the uh, urban areas in Nashville, providing uh, education uh, like GED training, uh, job skills training for underemployed uh, women, uh, women, um, yeah, struggling with um, low income. And challenges associated with low income, and uh, and then after that, I actually moved into the international humanitarian aid sector, and so really for kind of the better part of the last fifteen years, have been um, a, a chaplain to international aid workers. I, I I don't really like to say I'm an aid worker myself because I never felt like I was kind of doing the hard work of grant writing and implementing feeding programs or implementing clean water programs. I was kind of serving as a chaplain and staff care specialist to the people that do that day in and day out. And so I had the opportunity Mm. to go to many of the places they were serving all over the world and see some of those, um, see 
see that suffering, see people living in the aftermath of, um, you know, disasters, uh, been to, to, to war zones and areas of famine, areas of epidemic outbreaks. Um, so I've been able to travel to those places, but my role was really to to sit and listen to the impact of that trauma and that work on the people that we're going in to help and the people that we're going in to address some of those those needs. Uh, and so, you know, I it's really interesting. Your question's a good one of how did that work prepare me for my own catastrophe, <laughs> for my own disaster? And I've always felt like in some ways I've lived like, I don't know, like in the suburbs of other people's trauma. <laughs> And so like when I suddenly found myself dealing with my own my own loss, I felt actually totally unprepared. I thought I would be well prepared because it's like, man, I've been I've been to a war zone or I've I've seen people um, you know, experiencing kind of the worst that the world has to offer. And so I'm I'm well acquainted with sorrow, but it's very different when it's your own person that's been lost. It's your own. Um, it's your own story. It's your own grief. It's a. It's a very different experience. But what it did do, I guess, to prepare me was just there was an. In some ways, my uh, suffering had been normalized for me, and I think that was a, a key first step. Was to th- there wasn't this sense in which I was totally shocked that anything like this could happen to me. There was certainly elements of that, and there were days where it felt totally unreal but i also knew that this is what this is what life living in this broken world is and also the hope that i carried with me was that i i can get through this because i have seen people rebuilding their homes in the aftermath of a hurricane mm. i've seen um, people um, getting up and and walking away from a hospital bed after they their bodies had been riddled with shrapnel wounds and they'd lost five of their family members in a war, I've seen those people put one foot in front of the other and begin to move forward in their life. And so I knew that that human resolve, that resilience was in me, that it, it we have the capacity to do that, but that it was going to take time and patience and, and intentionality. So there was, so in some ways it did prepare me, but in other ways it was, I still felt like a complete novice when when approaching grief in my own life as you were really coming alongside people who are suffering and going through trauma what what did that look like because i feel like uh for those of us who are encountering others in our church mm-hmm. or friends mm-hmm. or loved ones who are who are suffering many times we mm-hmm. don't know what to say yeah. uh words fail us and, I, and i'm wondering like as you have you know 15 years serving in so many different capacities to helping people who are hurting what does it look like to come alongside? <laughs> oh, Mike, such a good question. And and I, I mean, you could. There's a whole industry now around what not to say to people who are suffering. You know, m- m- so many Instagram accounts and books, and and in <laughs> in some ways, I I get a little bit nervous about telling people what not to say to a griever or to someone who's traumatized because there's been so much said about all the terrible things that we've. That you can say in that moment that I'm afraid people will just not say anything at all. They'll be so afraid of saying the wrong mm-hmm. thing that they won't say anything at all, that they'll avoid the person. Um, they'll, they're afraid of doing further damage. They're just gonna, they're just gonna leave them alone. And I, I would say that's, that's the worst thing you can do. I mean, it, your imperfect 
presence is a lot better than your absence in a moment of loss and sorrow. Um, and and I, I actually think the best way to start when someone's in, in experienced trauma, experienced losses, I don't know what to say and just be honest with them and say, I'm, I'm here for you. I don't even know what to say. Um, and to just kind of be there in the mystery of it all. Um, I, I think one thing I have found, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of years going to hard places and listening to aid workers tell me their difficult stories and, and listening some to the stories of the beneficiaries they were working with. And I think the best thing you can do is just be curious, be curious about their experience, ask them questions about their experience and, and what, what they're, what they're feeling, um, you know, and, and also to show interest in the person as a whole to, to, to not just, you know, I know sometimes grief can feel like it consumes your whole life. And it seemed like for, for a long time, the only thing anyone wanted to ask me about was my grief. <laughs> and and sometimes I wanted to talk about something other than that. Our lives are made up of so much more than the trauma we've experienced or the grief we've experienced. And so a lot of times going to be with an aid worker who had just experienced a traumatic event was me being like, what books are you reading right now? Or what Netflix series are you binging? <laughs> and talking and, mm -hmm. and just being with the person as a whole person. Um, you know, that, that's, I'm scratching the surface, but I think the main thing is just don't, don't, don't never treat someone like they have the plague if, if they have experienced loss or trauma. You, you might say something wrong, but they'd rather you say something a little off-putting than to be avoided completely. I like the way you put that. I had to write this down. Imperfect mm. presence. Like I think that's a beautiful way to put it. Because yeah. I feel like that's, I mean, I think my struggle sometimes is that when I see somebody who's mm. suffering, a loved one, I, I want to just pull away because I don't, I'm, I feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. I'm going to make it worse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a struggle for me. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I think that just being honest with the person about that, just, you just say like, Hey, Man, I don't want to say the wrong thing right now. I I'm, I don't even know what to say, but I, I just want to be here for you. I want you to know I care about you, and I, I want you to know I'm here to listen. You know, um, I think that that is, you know, that is huge. I mean, and, and always the default is say 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 less than you're willing to li like listen more, say less. I think that's always kind mm -hmm. of kind of the default. Um, and and another thing that really helped me was people that were just like, let's go do something together. Because if they were like, let's go have coffee and talk about how sad you are, it was like, well, <laughs> mm. that sounds mm -hmm. overwhelming right now. But if they were like, hey, you want to go for a walk? Or hey, you want to go, um, you know, see a movie or whatever. And then, then that's when the talking came out when I felt kind of comfortable and we, we could, I could kind of be distracted with something else, but yeah. 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 I like that. I'm curious about your, how your faith um, helped and or mm. hurt you during these seasons. And I, I want to read a quote because your, your book co uh, covers some things that I was thinking about. You write, um, the language of the American evangelical church had informed many of my assumptions about suffering. Everything happens for a reason, mm -hmm. right? God doesn't give you more than you can handle, right? Just pray that peace that passes all understanding will wash over your body from head to toe, right? Mm -hmm. The presence of God will descend upon you like a dove from heaven, right? And you say, the problem was that peace and that presence sure didn't feel like I thought it would. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mike, to be honest with you, I feel like at first kind of my faith or 
at least where I was at kind of on my own faith journey, uh, hurt, <laughs> meaning it did, it didn't make things easier for me. And it may have even made things worse at first because I had this whole slew of expectations of kind of what suffering was supposed to be like for a Christian. So I thought that immediately I would find some sense of meaning in my suffering. I thought that there would be all kinds of redemptive purpose to my suffering that would become apparent to me from the get-go. I, and, and mostly, I think the biggest one is that you know, there's such an emphasis in, in the American evangelical church on that personal, individual, one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ that I thought I knew what that relationship was supposed to look like in grief, you know, that it was supposed mm -hmm. to be like, that I, that I was going to sense his presence all the time, that it was going to be this otherworldly peace that passes understanding. And I mean, sure enough, it was a peace that passes understanding because I didn't understand it at all. I didn't understand what I was feeling. <laughs> I didn't understand why God felt so absent, you know, why did I just... Yeah, it's it's strange. I tell people the thing that surprised me the most about grief was how uncomfortable it was. Meaning, I was just yeah. I was it, I was so uncomfortable. I mean, it was like torture. The grief was just like torture, and there was no relief. But the way on the back end of things, the way I think my my faith, like the, the true message of Scripture and the true message of Christianity, actually helped me was because. There's so much in the Bible about the mystery of sorrow and the mystery of suffering. And the just it, the Bible makes a lot of space for um, sorrow, for anger, for fear. It makes it makes a lot. It almost seems to indulge it in some ways. You know, this the calling for the wailing women to come and just wail aloud for days and days and days when Israel is suffering. And um, even the way God steps bodily into the sorrow of the world um, and you have this incredible kind of scene of Jesus arguing with God <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane saying that I, I don't want to go through this this is too much and just kind of the mystery of that of like why how can God be good and all of these things still happen and the Bible doesn't necessarily give an answer to that but it does respond with God being present with us. Uh, and I think that that to me is what kind of in some ways pulled me out of the darkness to say all of these things that people promised me, the silver linings, the good feelings, the clarity on the purpose of everything, none of that is true and none of that's going to happen. But God suffered death. God, my God subjected himself to death, to the worst form of suffering. God tells me I'm allowed to cry. God tells me I'm allowed to be angry. God tells me that the world is evil and broken and this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's just so affirming of grief. And I think in the end, that's what kind of really reaffirmed my faith and mm -hmm. made me think this story is almost too unbelievable to be true. It's, it's, it speaks so much to our sorrow and so much to our loss. And, and I was completely barreled over by that. What I thought was also beautiful about your book is you kind of were writing about lament mm -hmm. in scripture. You point out like the very first book of our Bible, which is probably the book of Job. Yeah. That is a whole story of lament. And then you point out that like a third of our Psalms mm -hmm. are lamenting Psalms. Yeah. 
Um, and I, that really shook me because I never really thought about it that, that that way. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, as a scholar, think the first book of the Bible ever written was you know written down and collected. I guess it was was Job, which is just a book about suffering and the mystery of suffering with really no answer as to why we suffer and. Uh, you know, it, just kind of the beautiful mystery of that, the tenderness of God's choice and kind of making that his first communication and, and, and written word to to mankind. But, you know, I, I don't know if you feel this way, Mike, but, you know, I'm, the more I read through my Bible as an adult, the more I'm like, oh, yikes. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of familiar. Like, this is becoming real to me now that I have a three-year-old that's wanting to learn Bible stories. And it's really hard to mm-hmm. pick Bible stories that are three-year-old appropriate. <laughs> yes. You know, so you spend a while thinking, what kind of book is this? It's like violence, death, exploitation, yada, yada. But I also think that, like, man... What if what if the stories God told us were just happy, easy, miraculous, um, fluffy, light, fluffy stories? Mm. He's he's getting into the muck and mire of what it means to be human, and showing us who He is uh, in, in the midst of that. And I have found that now that I've experienced more personal suffering, to be really powerful. Yeah, it was funny. Like when my kids were really little, I remember like, you know, I had like the the children's kind of story Bible. Like it kind of gives you like a positive look at totally. you know, some of these stories. Yeah. You know, but some but some of them like, gosh, like Noah's Ark. I'm like, like the, the whole scene is just tragic. It's like, how do you so you're like, okay. You're kind of like talking about yeah. the animal. You're not yeah. really getting into the yeah. details. Look at that cute, look at that cute <laughs> zebra over there. You know, meanwhile, yeah. humanity is being snuffed out. Like, yeah, it yeah. is, you know, you go through the list of the stories that are like, oh, Zacchaeus climbed in a tree to hear Jesus. That's pretty cool. And, you know, <laughs> or like the story yeah. of Abraham and Isaac is pretty great until, you know, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac on mm-hmm. the altar. And anyway, mm-hmm. but like I said, I, you know, I, I think I am learning that like God wants to tell the hard stories because he wants to reflect mm-hmm. the reality of of life in this world. And in some ways there's a real, there's a real blessing in that, that our text, like our holy text doesn't shy away from that stuff. You mentioned um, the absence mm-hmm. of God and in those moments of lament, those moments of grief. Um, and I wonder if you can kind of talk about mm-hmm. that because I find that in those moments where you're maybe having a crisis of faith alongside mm-hmm. this trauma and you're crying out to God and you're looking at the Psalms as an example of like, here's David or whoever the writer right. is crying out to God, like, God, where are you? And you you find comfort in that, like, yes, where are you, God? Um, and you're continuing with this ritual of going to church on mm-hmm. Sunday. Mm-hmm. But now, like, it's not feeling the mm-hmm. same. Like, you're like almost getting upset at the praise songs because yeah. you don't feel like praising yeah. God. Yeah. You know, I... Um... I'm probably going to get in trouble somewhere for saying this, but I I think there's been a lot of emphasis in the last, well, I don't know, 30, 40 years of American evangelicalism on, you know, you heard it said it's a, it's a, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I understand the heart behind that. And I'm not trying to kind of knock on that, that we we Mm -hmm. do have this intimacy with God that is not about um, kind of rote legalistic 
obedience, you know. Um, but at the same time, I think we have downplayed the importance of religious practice. And by what, what, what I mean by that is kind of these habitual liturgies of, of life with God, of being part of a communal institution that believes in something bigger than the one individual self. And so much seemed to growing up, um, just because of the kind of subculture I was a part of, so much seemed to depend on my own one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. I mean, I've heard worship directors say, you know, at a church service, be like, draw a circle around yourself. It's just you and God in this moment. And it's like, okay, like, mm -hmm. I get that they're trying to convey mm -hmm. an experience of intimacy. But right, at the same time, right. like, what, man, what saves you when that kind of one-on-one -on -one connection feels cut off is is the religion, is the is the institution of the church, the community of the church saying, there's a hundred other people in this room that believe right now, even if you don't believe, stay stay mm. with them. In the same way that it's it's the institution of marriage that kind of saves my relationship with my husband when we're not really kind of clicking, <laughs> you know? Um, if it mm -hmm. only depended on our kind of mutual feelings of affection at any given moment, we might not be together anymore. And so I think just... I think finding that balance and just saying there a religion comes with a list of creeds, it comes with a list of, of statements of belief, it comes with rituals, it comes with habits, it comes with accountability, it comes with community. Um, we are radical individuals, we are all deinstitutionalizing right now, and I would caution against that in some ways because there's there's a lot of beauty and kind of anchoring to be found when you kind of take that pressure off the one-on-one -on -one relationship. Um, if you're just not really emotionally experiencing God in that moment, it's okay. Your faith is not a failure. It's not the end of the story. You're still on a journey. Um, and that was really important to me in my experience of grief. What were some of the, the rituals of, of going to church that you found most helpful mm -hmm. as you were maybe feeling faithless? Mm -hmm. Um, I think, well, I think, I think prayer and beginning the day in a posture of prayer, like I remember um, in some of the early days of my grief saying before I look at my phone, before I do anything, I'm going to like mm. literally kneel and pray. I, I just kind of get out whatever comes out. Like it might, it's not going to be eloquent. Yeah. It might not even be heartfelt and it may be a repetition, but uh, you know, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, I think that, um, and I think that, well, and you know, it's interesting, Mike, like I, my, the most significant portions of my grieving in the last three to four years have been during a pandemic. And so gathering together with non-believers or, or with other believers was, was really challenging. Um, but, you know, just continuing to say like, Hey, if I am going to, I'm going to show up to church or I'm going to mm -hmm. hit, you know, start on the live stream. I don't have to sing. I don't have to raise my hands in an emotional connection with God, but I'm going to listen um, and watch as other people pray and sing and allow that to wash over me. Um, kind of, you know, we're, we're holistic beings. Like our bodies need to show up for the life of faith and our bodies need to show up for grief, even when our hearts feel stagnant or our hearts feel detached. And so kind of bringing my body to those places was really important. Um, and then just, I don't know, keeping good people around you um, that um, 
were more nuanced and didn't try to theologically explain away your <laughs> your mm-hmm. your grief or your suffering, but that but that could also remind you of some things that were true. I think that was really important. Did you find it hard to like open up to somebody who's like checking in on you, like, "Hey, Amanda, how are you doing?" Because the, the sometimes our our quick response is like, "I'm mm-hmm. fine," or like, "It's been hard, but I'm doing okay." Like, you just mm-hmm. want to like you don't want to go there. Did you find it? Do you find it hard? Yeah, it's interesting. I literally right before I got on this call, I, I was writing an article about this um, because it, oh, it's okay. an interesting <laughs> question, right? Like when people, I cannot tell you the number of times people have been like, "But how are you doing, really?" You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and yeah. I, sometimes I would say I'm okay, and they would look at me like kind of perturbed that I wasn't willing to open up more. <laughs> and so I, I I try to remind people like. When you ask someone who's grieving if they're okay and they say that they are, first off, believe them, you know, and, and, and don't put, you're not their therapist, you're their friend. Try to approach that, that response with curiosity rather than assessment. Um, you know, it may be that in that moment they are okay. And this is something that's really difficult to understand uh, or, or to, to explain as a griever. It's difficult to explain how you can be both not okay and okay, that you're both things mm. at the same time, that you've learned how to function, you've learned how to take care of your life's responsibilities, and you may have even found joy in life, and you may be enjoying many aspects of life while you are simultaneously wrecked and ruined by the catastrophic loss you've experienced. You're just both things at the same time. And so I think when a griever tells you that they're okay, it may be that they're celebrating that they just got out of bed that morning. It may be that they're actually having a moment of joy and they don't want to interrupt that by (laughs) going into the details of their suffering with you. Um, And it could be that they're lying. They may not be okay. They may just be saying that they are because they don't feel like talking about it or they don't know how to find the words to explain it um, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so I think if you're a friend asking after someone who's grieving, again, I think the, the response or the, the solution is always just be curious, you know, and just say, well, what's what's bringing you joy or what's what's helped you lately or what TV shows are you watching right now? You know, like yeah. ask, yeah. ask yeah. about the yeah. rest of their life. And then some yes. of those things yes. will, will, will come out in the conversation, you know? Yeah. I like that. Um, to get to know them on a, on a more uh, personal level and how they're like other things happening in their life. Cause they, Maybe at a point may feel comfortable to open up, but maybe you're not yeah, right now. Yeah, exactly. And remember, it's that's if they don't feel like talking to you, it's nothing against you. It doesn't mean you're a bad friend. You just don't. They may have spent the whole morning talking about it, or they may, like I said, be finally in a place where they're kind of getting a reprieve from the overwhelming emotion, yeah. and they just don't want. They don't want to talk about it in that moment. And so, you know, don't. It's not personal. It's not about you. Uh, just you know, be curious, be a good listener, be available. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, like, I guess if you haven't established that sort of deeper connection with that Mm -hmm. person, they may not be as willing to open up right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's it's a really intimate thing to share how you're doing in grief. And it takes a lot of energy to actually just receive condolences, I've I've found. Um, And that's why grievers often hide. Uh, and don't want to go out or want to be alone. And I'm an introvert. I wanted to be alone a lot to kind of recharge. And that's okay. It's okay to kind of, you know, sometimes grievers do need to have space. But always reminding them that you're available, I think, is a really practical way to help, you know. Yeah. 
because I feel like sometimes like you get those questions and you're maybe at church mm-hmm. And like this is not the place I know. where I'm ready to go I know. there. It's I know. Not, not like, right there's, I know. I had just had a baby when I lost my sister, and so it's like I, my baby would be like crying. I'd be trying to take care of my baby and be like, "But how are you really?" I'm like, "I'm holding the crying baby." Like that's how I am right now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd really now's not the time to talk about it. But um, but I I will say that I I by and large had just a really beautiful and wonderful experience with people offering comfort and offering presence. You know, I. Um, a lot of people have had terrible experiences with that. And I have just really awesome, sensitive, wise friends that knew that's how to awesome. love me well through that. So that's yeah. beautiful. What did, what did you find, um, like most comforting, like uh, as you were and, and still are going through this mm-hmm. process? Mm-hmm. Um, but initially in the very beginning, as people were dropping food mm-hmm. off and just coming by, what did you find just most helpful? Yeah. I think what was really helpful was people because it's hard and people are like, let me know if you need anything. And that's okay. Like that's helpful. Um, But it's kind of hard to figure out what you need in the beginning. You don't really know. And so I had a few friends that would just either do the thing, you know, like so friends that would stock the fridge while I'd be, you know, back in my hometown Mm. taking care of things. Or um, I had some friends that said, we'll come over any night this week that works. We'll get a babysitter. We'll bring food and we'll sit and you can talk as long as you need. Just tell us when. And it was awesome because there was one day where I felt like I was ready to talk and wanted to talk. They came right over and we talked for three hours and it just Mm. all came out, you know, but it was just kind of them kind of naming the specifics of what they were able and willing to do. So then I could just kind of say, okay, cool. I'll take that and I'll take that and I'll take that. So kind of offering specific things to help was really great. Um, Cause if, you know, if someone says I could, let me know if you need anything, I don't want to be like, okay, well, cool. Can you come mow my lawn? Like, I don't know. Like it, it's, it, then you kind of feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway, yeah, but if yeah. they say, Hey, I'm available to mow your lawn. Let me know what night, you know, it's just like that. That's really cool yeah. because as I hate, Many people are like me. We hate asking for help. And so when you list specifically what you can do, um, you know, that was really helpful. And then again, people that just wanted to do normal stuff with me was great. You know, people, are, you know, people wouldn't invite me to like birthday parties for a while because it's like, oh, she probably doesn't want to come to a birthday party. And it's like, yeah, I do. I want to come to a birthday party. Like, I want to do something normal, you know. So just being yeah. treated like a normal person is really important, too. Uh, when did you start to write this book? Because in the midst of all this, in the midst of your grieving, uh, you're taking on a huge project to write about grief. That might have been a bad idea, Mike. I still sometimes think like it was too soon that if I were to have written the book maybe five years later, maybe I'd have all kinds of awesome nuggets of wisdom and advice <laughs> to give because my I would have my grief would have aged a little bit and maybe I would have some more perspective. But I, I think the reason I ended up writing this book is because, um, you know, my sister and I were actually working on a book idea together before she, she passed away. And so I was kind of in book proposal mode already. Hmm. Um, and then I obviously, you know, I was kind of journaling a little bit about my grief and just writing what I was feeling and experiencing. And, but then I think kind of the big game changing moment happened when I was just scrolling through a news feed or my Facebook feed, you know, it's like your phone, it's like the algorithm knew I was grieving or something. And it sent me this article that was like, 
strange grief rituals from the past Mm. and around the world. And I started just reading about the way generations past have processed their grief and the strange rituals that they incorporated into their grieving process. And it, it kind of unlocked all these emotions in me that were there, but I didn't really know were there. And, and it just really got me curious. And so just kind of on my own accord, I started just doing a lot of research on my own and listening to podcasts and reading books about um, grief rituals from around the world, grief rituals from the past that have died out. Um, and right about that time, COVID-19 happened. And I, it became clear to me that the country and the world was going through an unprecedented season of death and grief, and that maybe other people needed to hear about some of these rituals. And that's when I, that's when I kind of started sketching up what a, what a book might look like, and just trusting that the language I had access to in the depth of my grief would be enough or would be, would meet someone wherever they were. Um, and so, Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot to take on, but it, it, it also was a a real, um, uh, pathway for healing for me to actually work on this project. It actually forced me to think about my grief rather than distract, distract myself and I, I mean, I'm the queen mm. of distraction and numbing and circumventing. And, and so I think being forced to engage actually daily with my grief was something I really needed. And so I am glad I did it. I just wonder sometimes if the wiser path would have been to wait a bit longer. But um, I guess it's too late for that. Here we are. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you wrote it because um, I think and you even talked about it in your book, like it being fresh in your mm-hmm. mind, you're writing about grief in a certain way yeah. that you can only write about it when it's fresh. Yeah. And, and you, you quoted like CS Lewis, like a grief observed about, about mm-hmm. grief. And I'm wondering like, were there other Christian writer, other writers or yeah. books you were looking into to help you? Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. There are some books that really, I think, um, I mean, the, there were some really old, dusty books I found in my university library that I'm like, I, I don't think the book's been checked out in like 40 years, but like <laughs> it lived at my house with me. And, and, you know, I read every page and tons of notes. Um, but there there are other people that have written. Um, Brandy Scalace is is a, a woman who, a, a medical historian that wrote a book called Death's hmm. Summer's Coat. And it's all about kind of the way we view death throughout the ages. And that book was, again, that was one that was really kind of a launch point for me to start thinking about this. Um, you know, Philippe Rees wrote his, um, you know, famous uh, kind of this huge textbook on, on grief, The Hour of Our Death, that, that gave me so much insight on, you know, the, the history of grieving rituals. But then there are, you know, the authors that many people are familiar with. C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed uh, did not disappoint. <laughs> it was, you know, I'd never read it before. And I was like, well, there's a lot of hubbub about this book. I wonder how it's going to be. And it delivered. I mean, it really was beautifully um, poignant. And um, Nicholas Walterstorff wrote a similar kind of book in that, that it was written in the immediate aftermath of his son's death. And it's a bit meandering and a bit kind of um, mm. 
even, I don't want to say nonsensical at times, but it's just him processing in real time. And, and I cannot recommend it enough. Nicholas Wolterstorff. Um, and then some recent books that have been uh, written. Jen Pollock, Michelle, uh, The, the uh, Surprised by Paradox has some beautiful stuff about grief. Tish Harrison Warren, who I know you've had on the show. Um, she, she Prayer in the Night was hugely helpful. So some of those books that really, um, really added, I think, um, to you know, just my own processing and then allowed me to, to write the book. Were there, uh, certain, uh, Bible passages or Psalms that really spoke to you during Mm -hmm. this time? Yeah. And ones that you wouldn't necessarily think, you know, it's like, you know, there's, there are the classic, you know, first Thessalonians 4, 13, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. I don't know. That one didn't do much for me. (laughs) Because yeah. I yeah, think yeah, I right. think we've often right. <laughs> interpreted that that we we put a we put a comma in it. We do not grieve. Pause as those who have no hope, uh-huh. and it's like, no, we do grieve, but we do so with hope, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so there there are some of those kind of classic mm. ones that, and honestly, I don't write a whole lot about like the hope of the afterlife or the resurrection in the book, and some people might be really disappointed by that. I think that's not that's not because I the hope of the bodily physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own physical bodily resurrection is the cornerstone of my life. I've put all my eggs in that basket for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But but I it's a to me it's a mystery. I think so much of w- the life after this life and the the new kingdom, the new heaven, and the new earth. There's a lot of mystery to that, and so I I don't know how much I need to pontificate on that smarter people than me can can write about that please see nt write um what i wanted to write about is like how god and scripture met me kind of in the here and now and and the you know before we experience that resurrection and what does god have to say to me in that and yeah i think jesus's sorrow spoke a lot to me in in my grief um just the whole the the fact that the whole narrative of scripture is driving towards God subjecting himself to death, subjecting himself to grief, like that's unbelievable. I mean, that's a that's an incredible meta narrative that we have that we get to 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 hold on to. Um, so just kind of yeah, the story of Jesus, the the people he interacted with, you know, the the people that suffered. I mean, Ezekiel, that's a rough. That is a rough mm. book, man. But if you read it when you're in grief or after you've been to a war zone or after you've experienced people suffering from famine, there's just so much hope that God wants to speak to that and to address it. And so I found comfort in scriptures that were kind of off the beaten path, if you will. Um, and the other the other famous ones are great, too, I guess. Like, the Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> you know, all those things. That there, there, there was a place for them. But um, Ecclesiastes has so much to say about disillusionment and fear of death and how awful that is. And uh, yeah, that was another one I read a lot in my grief that really helped. So it's all over. It's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting you say Ecclesiastes because like when I read, read that sometimes uh, I think I feel hope. I feel like despair. (laughs) That's why I loved it. That's why I loved it. (laughs) Because I was like, ha ha. Like Koheleth, the wisest man in the world, he also feels despair and disillusionment. This does not square with like 
the hearty optimism of American evangelicalism. And I loved it. You know, I just loved that in the end, he was like, yep, you're going to die and all your possessions will be given to another and everything is meaningless. So you know what? Enjoy life while you can and obey God and keep his commandments and everything's going to be brought out under the light. The end. Like for something, there was something about that that just was really comforting to me, you know? Well, Amanda, I want to thank you so much for, for writing a fantastic book on grief and all the rituals, and all your insights, your personal insights into ways that you've managed grief and dealt with the messiness of grief. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your book. And, and, and of course, for thank you for coming on the podcast. Mm-hmm. To talk a little bit thank about you it. for reading the book. And thanks for having me on. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dogato Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Delgado Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time. Thank you.